The situations I'm going to talk about right now, not everyone knows the truth that exists. There are elders who have experienced much and governments that have spent a lot of time looking for the truth. What a game everything has been. But I am a son of this country and have lived through these experiences. And now, the words I want to say, God will testify for me. Welcome back to Beyond Soundbites. I'm Jacob Mao. This narrative podcast series invites faith-driven refugee supporters to practice listening to those for whom we advocate. Being a listener has the power to ground our work by reminding us that God created every single person who becomes displaced and loves him or her with a depth we cannot comprehend. When I visited Turkey in 2017, many of the Iranians, Syrians, Afghans, and Iraqis who were willing to talk with me were people of Muslim background who had encountered Jesus or were at least meandering toward him and away from an Islamic worldview. Their stories are a powerful reminder that while many countries are closing their doors to Middle Eastern and Central Asian refugees, the Lord is pursuing them with a powerful healing love even in the midst of their suffering. In earlier episodes, we met three people, Peter, Roman, and Oge, whose faith identity changed before they became refugees. Today, we meet a Syrian man in his 40s, Muhammad, who encountered Jesus in the midst of his displacement. After a time of worship and song at a gathering for Arabic-speaking Christian leaders in southeast Turkey, Muhammad sat down for an hour and a half to share his story. Rather than fact-checking and probing for information, I let his words fall more or less where he placed them and tried to retain the tone of the conversation the way he told his story in the edited version you're about to hear. My father was a construction worker. We use this word in our dialect. Really, he did plaster work. And he was the only one who worked and supported us. My mother stayed at home and took care of us. Both my parents were illiterate. They couldn't ever read or write. My father was raised as an orphan alone. He lived a very difficult life and wasn't able to go to school. And my mother lived with her family. At that time, it was shameful for girls to go to school. My father took his role as a father very seriously. He was a gentle and very generous father who thought it was important that his children study and go to school. So he sent all of his children to school, the boys as well as the girls. In my case, I studied in the local neighborhood school from first to sixth grade. For us, that is like our grade school. And my father had a very big dream for me, that I would become a doctor. Muhammad did well in school in Aleppo for a while, but in seventh grade he began to fall behind and by ninth grade he flunked out. 
When I failed out, it was a huge disappointment for my family, my father and mother. It was difficult because they had put a lot of hope in me. So they encouraged me to go back and repeat ninth grade so that I could get a diploma, which could be beneficial for me in the future. But I had already decided I was finished with school and I would not study any further. This was an important and foundational stage in my life. I started a new phase of life, that of employment and working, really a stage of suffering. And I always thought, why have I abandoned school in the pursuit of knowledge? But it is finished. That is how life goes. So Muhammad went to work at a young age doing odd jobs, the kind of work that uneducated people do, he said. Eventually, it came to be time for his compulsory military service, which he did for two and a half years. After that, he returned home and worked with his father, who by that time had opened a shop selling clothes and shoes. After a time, he left again, found work in neighboring Lebanon, and spent time traveling back and forth between Syria and Lebanon for work. Clashes began to erupt between government forces and rebel militias in other regions of Syria in 2011. By then, Muhammad was married with two children, a son from his first marriage and a daughter from his second. In 2012, the fighting reached Aleppo. It was around this time that the peaceful marches started and carried on for a time. Then the army entered the city of Aleppo, and that's when the actual protests began. And after a while, people started using weapons, so my family and I fled to the countryside. The situation changed overnight. It went from no arms to a really frightful, scary situation with heavy arms. Many families went to the countryside. Of course, it was me and my whole family. It was the first time that we experienced bombings like this and saw heavy weaponry being used. Up until then, there was nothing like this. And then all of a sudden, overnight, everything became truly terrifying. So naturally, everyone in the area left the country, everyone who had to endure these bombings. His family's initial departure from Aleppo was sometime between summer 2012 and summer 2013. The way Muhammad describes it, during these months, much of the city's civilian population monitored the fighting from the countryside, trying to decide their next move. There were interludes in the fighting that gave people hope, but the worst was still ahead. Of course, during this period, many people returned to the city. They started working and opened up stores and businesses. But I was still working in Lebanon and was doing well. So I was still coming and going. It was also the period that the barrel bomb started. It was something terrifying something I had never seen before in my life. During this time, as a man, you felt that you had lost control of your nerves and control of yourself. This is when the people of that city and the people of the countryside began to leave and flee to Turkey and Lebanon in large numbers. Barrel bombs are cheaply made, unguided bombs made from oil drums, 
or water tanks and packed with explosives and shrapnel. The first reported accounts of barrel bombs used in mass on the city of Aleppo was in December of 2013. Muhammad's family, like many families, he said, split up as they strategized what to do. For a time, his wife and daughter were with his in-laws outside Aleppo. His son from his first marriage was with his parents in Aleppo, but they fled when the barrel bombs started. The city of Aleppo was clearly divided. The eastern side of the city was heavily armed and was ruled by the revolutionaries. But across the border in the western part of the city that was under the rule of the regime, there was nothing. But of course people were fleeing from the eastern area that was under attack by the barrel bombs. Most people began to flee to Turkey because it was close and for a time the border was open for the people. That's why a lot of people started to flee. And at the same time, people were fleeing to Lebanon, because these were the two closest neighboring countries. But the largest migration was to Turkey. And so my family, the household of my uncle and that of my mother-in-law and wife were part of the people that fled to Turkey. Now, with his wife and daughter in Turkey and his son with his parents displaced within Syria, Mohammed was still able to travel to Lebanon to work and make money for his family for a while. But eventually, they shut the border, and he too ended up in Turkey, where he's been for about three years now. We never get around to parsing out exactly how Mohammed made it to Turkey, because at this point, he backtracks to share another part of the story. It was in the middle of chaos, war, and displacement that he encountered Jesus. This series of Beyond Soundbites was created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership. If you're listening before September 2018, you can still register for their annual North America event. Before we continue with the story, let's hear a word from Nate Schultz. Hey, I'm Nate Schultz in Seattle, Washington with the Refugee Highway Partnership. On October 24th through 26th in Chicagoland, our 10th annual roundtable will bring together churches, ministries, and individuals from the U.S. and Canada supporting forcibly displaced people. We hope you'll join us. Learn more and sign up at rhpna.com. During one of his trips to Lebanon, Muhammad was walking along the coast and met a man from Western Europe who was handing out Bibles and talking to people about Jesus. The man and his family had lived in Lebanon for many years, even during that country's civil war, which ended in 1990. This impressed Muhammad. The man's Arabic was broken, but Muhammad could understand him, so they talked for a while. So, it was because of this discussion, a short conversation on the beach, that we had a sort of an argument and also got to know each other. Then we had another basic discussion about religion and Islam and Christianity. A third time we went to the church and sat and drank coffee there. This was the first time in my life that I entered the church. It was a simple step, but this encounter changed my life. Muhammad left Lebanon again and spent the next few months facing inner conflict between the teachings of the New Testament and his religious disposition as a Sunni Muslim. He struggled to understand how God could make him holy in a non-Islamic way. This was a time of serious struggle for my spirit. It was clear that everything was going from bad to worse. 
bad to worse until I reached the very bottom. Finally, I reached a limit, and I had this urge and decided to ask with all of my heart, Lord, show me the truth. Muhammad described the circumstances of his prayer in more detail. When he returned to Lebanon a few months after he met the man of peace, the man welcomed Muhammad into his home. Muhammad spent the night there, and during the night he had a dream. Before I had this dream, before I slept, I prayed, O Lord, please teach me the truth. Please let me see what is true. I want to know. I am so tired. Then, in my dream, I saw the Christ. I saw him as a person, but a very large and great form that was holding olive branches in his hands. He called me by my name. He said, I want you. Then he gave me the first olive branch. Yes, he gave me the first olive branch, and then he continued giving me more and more branches until he had given me all of them. When Muhammad woke the next morning, he felt refreshed and rested, though he had gone to sleep exhausted and depressed. In the morning, I woke up early. At that point, I was unemployed. I had no money. I really had nothing. Then this person called me and told me he had found me a job. And from this very moment, my life completely changed. It was a difference so great, like the distance from heaven to earth. Really, I knew from that moment I had been born again spiritually. I began to read the New Testament more and more. From that moment until now, I have lived with peace inside of me. I no longer become angry with people because of this eternal peace. And all of the difficulties that had seemed to plague me before Turkey gone. Mohammed still has plenty of challenges within Turkey. He mentions a failed business endeavor that had left him with debts he couldn't pay. He lives far from his family and seldom sees them. Sometimes he asks God why he hadn't gone with the waves of refugees who came through Turkey and made it to Europe in 2015. But he always circles back to a sense of purpose, a sense of commission even, to share his faith with his own people. When asked about his hopes and prayers for the future of his homeland, Muhammad goes on a long diatribe. The interpreter can hardly keep up. A heaviness overtakes his face, infuses his tone and his cadence. There's a strength and an element of mystery in his words. The situations I'm going to talk about right now, not everyone knows the truth that exists. There are elders who have experienced much and governments that have spent a lot of time looking for the truth. What a game everything has been. But I am a son of this country and have lived through these experiences. And now, the words I want to say, God will testify for me. God knows what I want to say. It is He who has chosen me time and time again so that I can now speak words of truth. The people who are currently in Syria killing people are criminals, without exception. All of them are looking for personal gain. All are looking for profit, for glory, for money, for influence. And the poor people, the good people, the people of peace, no one ever thinks about them, ever. He goes on to say what his prayer is for the people committing evil deeds in his country. 
And these people, I believe that God will enter them and work on them so they will become followers of the Son of the God of Truth. But I ask also that those of us who have become believers would be able to bring the message to them, although they might find it strange, that God would enter this world and that Syria would become better than before, and that for the people who are Muslims, I ask God would give them the same peace He has given me from the mosque, from inside Syria, from countries outside of Syria, or while fleeing, and that for every Syrian on this earth, that God would give him the same peace that he has given me. It's time for our final mini-story of this series. These vignettes focus on the subject outside his or her narrative of displacement. They do so in order to remind us that refugee is a term, not an identity, and that in the eyes of God, a displaced person is first and foremost his child, created and loved by him. I meet a man in Istanbul. We're at a hospitality event for displaced people. He greets me with a firm handshake, looks me in the eye and says, I am Hamid. I am from Syria. He wears stonewashed jeans, tennis shoes, a dark t-shirt, a tattered baseball cap. He's stocky and his head's completely shaved. He had come to Istanbul eight months before. In Syria, he studied mechanical engineering. He has hopes one day to make it to the US or Canada. We talk informally for probably 40 minutes. He begins telling me the story of how and why he had to leave Syria, but we get sidetracked and Hamid launches into a long story about something that happened back home when he was a teenager. He tells the tale that follows with such delight and amusement, I can only listen. When Hamid was a teenager, he says, a big family moved into his neighborhood. They were always causing trouble. One kid in the family was especially a troublemaker. He would do things like go around knocking on people's doors and then running off. One day, this kid sprayed Hamid with a hose when Hamid walked by his house and the kid was out watering his garden. Hamid was angry, but he didn't retaliate. He was about 16 years old at this time. The next day, out at the market, he saw the kid. His name was Mahmoud. Mahmoud made fun of him and said he was a wimp because he hadn't fought back the day before, so Hamid said, Okay, you think I'm a wimp? Why don't you meet me alone back by our houses and we'll fight? So Hamid went and waited for Mahmoud at the house. Eventually, Mahmoud came riding up on his bicycle, and he tried to ride right past Hamid, but Hamid grabbed him as he rode by and threw him off his bike. He landed on a plastic washtub that the women used to wash clothes and broke it to pieces. Then Hamid jumped on top of Mahmoud and punched him in the face. He left Mahmoud lying there and took his bike back to his own house. The next day, Mahmoud came over and asked for his bike back, but Hamid said no. He told him to send someone over who could take it by force. So Mahmoud went home and sent his ten brothers over to beat up Hamid and take the bike back. 
but it turns out that the rest of the town thought Mahmoud and his family were no good. They were all glad that someone had finally beat up Mahmoud and given him what he deserved, so a bunch of guys from the town came over to Hamid's house and kept the ten brothers from beating him up. All this trouble riled up the neighborhood, and people decided they had had enough of Mahmoud and his family. Really, no one liked them since they had moved there because they were always causing trouble, so they decided to complain to the family's landlord and ask him to make them move out. Mahmoud's father heard about it, so he went to Hamid's house and asked Hamid's father to please not let all the neighbors talk to the landlord. He promised he would make his sons behave. He said the same thing had happened to their family before, which is why they had to move there, and if they had to move again, they would have no place to go. So Hamid's father agreed, and the neighbors didn't talk to the landlord. After all that got resolved, Hamid and Mahmoud became good friends. Hamid finishes the story with a chuckle, a smile pregnant with joy and pain mixed together, and eyes focused downward as if they're seeing things that I cannot see. We have a saying in my country, he says, that you can't really be friends with someone until you fight them. All names and some identifying details in these stories were changed or omitted, and participants were informed about how their interviews would be shared. This series of Beyond Soundbites was created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational partners include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, Global Community Partners, and abounding service. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. Griffin Jackson was our content editor and story advisor. Brett Ratliff mixed the episodes. We'd love to create another series of episodes that go beyond sound bites in search of the personhood of displaced people, but we need your help. Find out how to donate and support at beyondsoundbitespodcast.org.